All right, let's begin with prayer. O Lord, our God, you are the God of truth, and we pray that you would reveal that truth to us through your word, and that your objective truth of the scriptures would be accompanied by that spirit of anointing and discernment, such that though we need teachers in one sense, uh, we need no infallible teacher, for we have the Spirit of God and the infallible Word of God, that whereby we might distinguish Christ from Antichrist and truth from error, whereby we might know how to see and have a light for our path and a lamp to guide our way, that we might walk in paths of righteousness for your name's sake. We pray, Holy Spirit, lead us into all truth. For Jesus' sake, amen. Well, this afternoon we continue our series of lectures on the federal vision. And in our previous lecture, we gave an overview of key events surrounding the federal vision. Obviously, 2022 marks the 20th anniversary of the controversy, properly speaking. But we saw that really the foundational elements of this controversy date back to the new perspective on Paul in the 1970s and beyond, the Norman Shepherd controversy, again, the late 1970s and beyond. And then we talked a bit about the Christian Reconstruction Movement, which really gained a head of steam, especially in the 1980s. And we saw how a number of these factors also involving the lordship salvation controversy between John MacArthur and the broader evangelical community, men like Zane Hodges and Charles Ryrie, this debate over whether you have to, by faith, receive Jesus as Lord or whether you can receive him as Savior and accept him as Lord as an optional aspect later on. But all these things were brought together to yield the context in which the federal vision controversy arose in 2002 at the Auburn Avenue Pastors Conference in Monroe, Louisiana, January of 2002, where Norman Shepard had been invited to speak, probably going to flesh out aspects of his book that would be published later that year, The Call of Grace. But instead, he was replaced with John Barrick, or I guess, having done some further research in the week past, Doug Wilson pronounces it Barrich. So we'll, at least in terms of pronunciation, uh, we'll use Wilson as the gold standard. But John Barrich was there to replace Shepherd, along with Steve Wilkins, who was the, the pastor of the host congregation of the PCA at that time, uh, Steve Schlissel from Messiah's Congregation in New York City, and Douglas Wilson as well. And so we talked about that conference, and we said that at that conference, a number of themes were raised stemming from, for instance, Norman Shepard's idea that justifying faith includes or involves faithfulness and that faith is, in some sense, an act of obedience. So you see at that conference quite a bit of discussion about justification by faith and what that means. Justification by faith, not works of the law. And you begin to see some elements of the new perspective, working their way into the content of some of these speakers. They also discussed the nature of baptism and its efficacy. They talked about how we should view our children, either presuming 
that they're regenerate, or that's the perspective that they took, and speaking favorably of the practice of paedo-communion. They also spoke negatively about systematic theology and so-called scholastic distinctions and terms. We need to get back to the Bible, they said, and have a new covenantal biblical vocabulary that is able to refer to things like union with Christ, justification, sanctification, election, regeneration, and and these types of terms in a non-salvific, non-decretal fashion, such that even though they would claim to believe in the perseverance of the saints, at the same time, they would say, well, there's a sort of covenantal union with Christ that can be lost, a sort of covenantal election that can be lost, so on and so forth. Now, we'll deal with those points because they do require a lot of precision because there is a sense in which, for instance, Israel in the Old Testament was corporately chosen by God, but most of them went to hell. So, there is such a thing as a corporate outward election. So there's a lot that that needs to be addressed. But the point is, the manner in which these men spoke lent itself to a lot of confusion. Rather than saying it the way I just did, they said it in, in in a way that gave the impression that they're mixing and matching between corporate election and eternal election, these kinds of things. So there was a lot of confusion. And of course, there were many people where the alarm bells were going off that this is Norman Shepard's teaching that's being revived. Because, again, Shepard was invited to the conference. These men were sympathetic to Shepard in in one way or another. And at the conference, they presented the doctrine of justification in in a way that seemed very similar to what Norman Shepard was saying. And just to remind us concerning these things, when we say that faith justifying faith does not justify as an act of obedience. We're not denying that true saving faith is obedient. God says, believe the gospel, and by God's grace, the regenerate believer believes. That's the obedience of faith. We're not saying that faith doesn't work by love or that faith is not a virtuous grace of the Holy Spirit. But of course, the Roman Catholic Church teaches that we're saved by faith in the same way that we're saved by any virtue or grace of the Christian life. So you're saved by faith in the same way that you're saved by love, or really they would even say justified by faith in the same way you're justified by love, or you're justified by hope, or you're justified by godliness, or you're justified by obedience, because they're looking at faith as a grace or virtue of the Spirit They're looking at faith in its capacity as a working faith, and they're saying faith justifies in that capacity. And so God looks at you and says, wow, I told you to believe, and you did it. You're righteous. That's the Roman Catholic view. And I told you to love, and you loved, so you're righteous. In other words, I caused you to be born again, the Lord says. I regenerated you, and now there's a principle of all of these graces and fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, and faith, and I'm now looking and rendering a verdict that you have these graces. You're righteous, and we're declared righteous upon, upon the basis of faith as a virtue and a grace rather than faith as it simply receives. The other thing that is in question here is these men are suggesting, some of them, that we're justified not by 
believing in Christ and being legally united to Him such that His righteousness is imputed to us legally, even though it's entirely distinct from us. It's His righteousness. He did it. It's not something wrought in us. It's not something that's in us. It's something that's in Christ, imputed to us legally. They're saying, no, we don't need that. We have union with Christ. And not just legal union with Christ, but again, they confuse what Christ did for us with what Christ does in us. So when we think of Christ in us, the hope of glory, Christ is in me, Galatians 2, 19 and 20, it's through the law that I died to the law, and it's Christ who lives in me, and it's, it's not I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So this is crucial that we don't begin to think we're justified by what Christ is doing in us through union with Christ, but rather what Christ did for us, and it's us legally in Christ as our head and covenantal representative. These are important distinctions. Justification in the Reformed and biblical view is a legal reality that does not involve what God is doing in our lives because the moment it does, then our lives are under scrutiny and we find that, oh, our faith, is it genuine? Yes, but it's weak. I believe, help my unbelief. If my faith is the basis of God declaring me righteous, guess what? Then he can't actually declare me righteous because my faith is hindered and polluted with doubt. My faith is imperfect. My hope is imperfect. My love is imperfect. All my fruits of the Spirit are imperfect, so they can't form the basis of my right standing with God. That's the concern coming out of this conference that people are having. Now, let's look at the immediate aftermath within the Reformed world. Right off the bat, in the summer of 2002, a tiny denomination called the Reformed Presbyterian Church in the United States. Now, we haven't sued them for copyright, but uh, they're the Reformed Presbyterian Church in the United States. Actually, they, are, they no longer exist. They've, they've since uh, went in a different direction. But, but the RPCUS, which had come out of the PCA, which was known for being a, basically a Christian Reconstructionist denomination, and among Christian Reconstructionists, they would have been, in the minds of many, from a confessional standpoint, some of the best, right? Some of the most confessional types of Christian Reconstructionists. You've got Joe Moorcraft at that time was there at uh, Chalcedon Presbyterian Church in Cumming, Georgia. Chris Strevel, many of us enjoy his sermons as well online even to this day. He's now in the OPC. I think he was in the RPCUS at that time. And certainly John Otis that we'll be mentioning later as an author who has addressed this controversy very ably. But the RPCUS, these are Christian Reconstructionists who are friends with a lot of the speakers who were at this conference in Monroe, Louisiana. So these are, these are guys that for decades have flocked together and been part of the same conferences, been in each other's, uh, the weddings of each other's children, and so on and so forth. So these are people that are very close, and so they probably had members of their churches that were at the conference. Some of them may have even been at the conference, and so they get the reports of this very quickly. And I remember I was in a Christian Reconstructionist church at the time in Illinois, and I remember getting, even back then before you had the same type of social media capabilities, getting word about this conference 
in 2002. But by June, June-ish, June, July, August, they came out with an official statement from Covenant Presbytery of the RPCUS, and it was called A Call to Repentance. And let me just read a couple things here. I've shortened it a bit, but this is the substance. That the teaching of the various speakers has the effect of destroying the Reformed faith through the introduction of false hermeneutic principles, the infusion of sacerdotalism, that's Romish type of view of the sacraments, and the redefinition of the doctrines of the church, the sacraments, election, effectual calling, perseverance, regeneration, justification, union with Christ, and the nature and instrumentality of faith. It goes on, the rejection of the Bible as propositional. That, that was uh, Schlissel's perspective that we need to be more Hebrew or Hebraic than Greek in our thought. The rejection of the Bible as propositional. The denial of the distinction of visible and invisible church. Baptismal regeneration constructed upon the principle of linking the sign and the reality in effect differs little from Roman Catholicism. The maintenance of the language of Calvinism in these speakers is superficial and misleading. We therefore resolve that these teachings are heretical. We call these men to repentance. We call upon the church of Jesus Christ to hold these teachings in contempt. We call upon the courts of the churches that are responsible for these men to institute judicial process against them and to vindicate the honor of Christ and the truth of the Christian gospel by bringing judgment upon them, suspending them from office, and removing them from the communion of the church should they not repent. May God have mercy upon their souls. So this was a trumpet blast, and then some. Now, by the way, both of these groups are Reconstructionists, so you have to understand kind of the way Reconstructionists think, the way they speak. Everything is just infused with exclamation. So the guys that are teaching this stuff are saying it sometimes in, in the most provocative kind of way, and then you've got more craft in the RPCUS, and they're coming down in just a, a very provocative way. But the stage is set now for a controversy that had a ripple effect throughout the entire Reformed world. And I, I recall being in a church where people were, you know, the book room was filled with books of people on both sides of this controversy. And in the church, people are discussing during the fellowship meal, you know, what to make of these things and how to wrestle with men that they respected on both sides who are now basically, uh, there, there's this anathema that's been declared. So there was that trumpet blast, a call to repentance. In 2003, the Auburn Avenue Pastors Conference met again and they had the title for the conference, Federal Vision Examined. And so they brought in people on both sides. They didn't bring anyone from the RPCUS. That's not surprising in some ways. But they invited Joseph Piper, who eventually became the president at Greenville Theological Seminary in South Carolina. They invited Morton Smith, who at that time was the president, I believe, of Greenville Seminary. And Carl Robbins, Pretty sure he was a pastor of the local Napark PCA or OPC church there in Greenville, South Carolina at the time. And so in terms of your Southern confessionalists, as Doug Wilson would call the TRs, the truly reformed, these are the guys that they brought in, some others as well. 
and they kind of uh, had debates back and forth. Now, that didn't seem in the minds of anyone to really resolve it because they were just either talking past each other or it was just an irresolvable difference between the two perspectives. And so you had a number of other things being released at this time. So in August of 2003, Christian Renewal Magazine did an interview with the Monroe Four, as they were called, or the the advocates of the Auburn Avenue theology, or as we would say today, the advocates of the federal vision, which is uh, Wilson, Wilkins, Barrich, and Schlissel. So they did an interview. Now, some of you may be familiar with Christian Renewal Magazine. I used to get this for a time when I first moved here. It's a Dutch Reform magazine. Seems like it has an emphasis on Christianity applied to all of life, kind of a Abraham Kuyper type feel to it, and it has a number of Dutch Reformed denominations that kind of feed into it. So they did an interview here in August of 2003. Now in this interview, listen to some of the things that were said. Here's a quote from Schlissel. Have Reformed folks gotten it wrong? Yes, to the extent that they've followed Luther in an imaginary law-gospel antithesis. The law as God gave it is the gospel. He goes on, and the gospel as announced by Paul is the law. Again, it was Christ's teaching that obedience to the law was something very doable and that such obedience, which includes repentance and faith, does save. So that's what I mean when I say, you know, whether it's the love language, is that the right term, but of the Christian Reconstructionists, they... Guys like Schlissel, they really like to put themselves out there. But he's basically saying faith is obedience. Obedience is faith. And by that obedience, Jesus says that's saving. That's how you're saved. And the law is doable. Now, by the way, if you listen to Schlissel, you will find that really the hole in his entire argument is this, that he's out here trying to prove that obedience to the law is possible, And he's not realizing that what's necessary for justification is perfect obedience. So the confessional reformed church has never denied that obedience is possible. Read the chapter in the Westminster Confession of Faith on good works. The Bible declares from beginning to end that God's people are obedient, that they obey God's commandments, that it's possible to obey the law. It's just not possible to obey it perfectly. And the wages of that imperfection, that sin, is death. And so that's the issue here. You get the sense Schlissel has encountered some antinomians that say, oh, it's impossible to obey God in any sense. No, it's impossible to obey his law perfectly, but we can have imperfect sanctified obedience, and and that's something that, that is very important in our sanctification. It has nothing to do with our justification. Anyway, that's a quote from Schlissel, so you can see how it's pouring gasoline on the fire. Wilson says, we say faith cannot be separated from trust and obedience. Now, there's a way you could understand that, that true saving faith is never separated from a regenerate heart of obedience. They're distinct. They're not separate. We might say that, but the the point here is that Wilson is being ambiguous and in, in the context where a lot of people are saying the things that Schlissel is saying, it's really misleading. Steve Wilkins says this, Romans 6 says that we've been baptized into Christ and his death, burial and resurrection, and raised to newness of life. 
That's objectively true of everyone who receives baptism. That does not mean that they are saved no matter how they live or respond to the grace of God. Indeed, Paul warns them about the possibility of being cut off because of the arrogance and unbelief in Romans 11. So he's saying, according to Romans 6, everyone who's baptized is objectively united to Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection and raised to newness of life. That's what he's saying. Now, at times he tries to qualify that and say, well, I'm just speaking objectively in this outward sense, but if you don't persevere in the reality of your baptism, then you go to hell. But it's very confusing. It seems to be saying all baptized people are saved, and it seems to be using biblical terms that refer to salvation, perhaps in an unbiblical way or in a very odd way that marks a, a very minor, a minority of the, way, the instances where the Bible uses those terms. Now, the interviewer from Christian Renewal says to Wilkins, can we be in the church but not united to Christ? Wilkins, that's a distinction the Bible doesn't make. The distinction is not biblical. The visible historic church is the body of Christ and thus to be joined to it by baptism is to be united to Christ. The interviewer from Christian Renewal. Can you be baptized by water and not baptized by the Spirit? Wilkins, I would say no. We may distinguish the work of the Spirit from baptism, but we should never separate the two, end quote. Barrage, finishing off just this other motif. The Bible is not a source book for theology. Certainly not. It doesn't seem for, for this theology, but, but I guess maybe that's their explanation. The Bible, we, you know, the Bible is not a source book for theology. It's a covenantal book, a liturgical book, a book to be addressed to the church. So apparently being covenantal means you're not being theological. Being liturgical means, you know, what's in your liturgy? Obviously not theology. What is it? Who knows? They often say it's, it's a book to be addressed to the church. It's pastoral truths, right? They, they say this all the time in their literature. It's, these are pastoral truths. It's not a source book for theology, but what are you feeding your sheep with, if not the truth, if not theology? Very odd way of speaking, but again, you can see how it, it sort of enables them to live in the midst of these mutual contradictions. Well, in that same month of August 2003, there was a conference on the West Coast sponsored by the folks who had previously been overseeing Bonson Theological Seminary in Southern California, the Southern California Center for Christian Studies, which had been founded by Bonson. Of course, Bonson was with the Lord at this time, but they sponsored a conference which eventually the next year was published in a book called Backbone of the Bible, edited by Andrew Sandlin. And Sandlin has a number of things to say. Listen to what he's saying here in terms of thinking of the new perspective on Paul that we talked about last time. Sandlin, Quote, traditional covenant theology tries valiantly to avoid salvation by human merit by claiming that Christ as man did the meriting, so sinful man need no longer merit as he once had to in the Garden of Eden. So while all of God's benefits to man today are gracious, eternal life, and this is what he's saying that the Reformed view is, traditional covenant theology, this is not his view, okay? Eternal life is fundamentally achieved by merit and not bestowed by grace. That's not our view, but 
you see this is how they get where they're going by just ignoring what our view actually is. But anyway, it's achieved by merit, not bestowed by grace. It is just that Jesus, not sinful man, now does the meriting. It seems to me that this makes Christ something of an afterthought in God's plan for man's gaining eternal life. Christ is no longer really the lamb slain from the world's foundation. He is rather an instrument to get something more ultimate than him, merit. Merit and justice, not Jesus, become ultimate. This I judge to be a serious error, end quote. So apparently the fact that when God became incarnate, he did it for the glory of God and his attributes of justice and righteousness and mercy. Apparently for the God-man to be subservient to the glorious justice of God, that makes Jesus an afterthought. What, What kind of Jesus are we looking for? A Jesus who doesn't justify and vindicate the glory and holiness of God, who doesn't satisfy the law? I think we can all judge Mr. Sandlin to be in grievous error here. But you see the new perspective. You can hear the words of N.T. Wright that we read last time just oozing out of that quotation. Sandlin again, neither Paul nor James is furnishing a theological definition of justification. Each is writing passionately and pastorally, not scholastically and theologically. He goes on, the Bible is is an infallible but often rather imprecise book. And we are likely to misunderstand it if we try to press its teachings into precise categories at all points. He goes on, I contend that had you suggested to the writer of Hebrews 11 that obedience is merely the result of faith, he would have looked at you without comprehension. Saving faith is an active faith, a faith that works by love, a faith that includes faithfulness. Now, for some reason... I thought I had jotted down the section from the larger catechism that deals with justifying faith, but I would urge you to look that up. We'll deal with it next time, where it talks about the way in which faith justifies, not as something that's wrought in us or done by us, but only by receiving Christ's perfect righteousness. So faith is faithful, but not in terms of justification. But notice how he's trying to dumb down systematic theology. He thinks the Bible reflects his own ignorance of logic and of consistency. And this is what the federal visionists are constantly trying to do. They impute to the authors of Scripture their own lack of precision. And this is a huge problem. We need to be logical. We need to be consistent because our God is logical and our God is consistent. It is impossible for him to lie although at a conference, I think a few years before this, reportedly Steve Schlissel debated another of the theologians at the youth conference and said, no, God can lie, and he cited all these instances of deception. So maybe that's even in question, but you can see kind of the internal incoherence here. Shepard was a speaker at that conference, and in one of his chapters of the book, he said this, Norman Shepard, quote, the righteousness Christ wrought out for us was not the fulfillment of the demands of the law during the whole course of his life, but rather his death and resurrection to pay the penalty for sin. In other words, the righteousness of Christ imputed to us for our justification is not his active obedience, but his passive obedience. He goes on to say this, For we do not find a belief in the imputation of active obedience in Calvin or Sinus or the Heidelberg Catechism, 
for the reason that their understanding of justification as the remission of sins did not require it and they did not find it in the Bible. He goes on, even the Westminster Confession as late as 1647 was written as a compromise document to accommodate the views of three prominent members of the Westminster Assembly who did not subscribe to the imputation of active obedience, end quote. Now, at this point, I was not at the conference to observe whether Dr. Shepard's nose grew six inches longer or not, but that is false. That is absolutely false. It's either incompetent or it is an outright lie, and we're going to get to that in our lecture on Norman Shepard. And we're going to go into Calvin where he explicitly affirms the imputation of Christ's law-keeping and obedience throughout his life as part of the believer's righteousness. And we're going to look at Ursinus's commentary on the Heidelberg Catechism where Ursinus explicitly speaks of Christ's fulfillment of the precepts of the law as being imputed to the believer. And we're going to obviously look at the Westminster Confession of Faith, which says that our righteousness is Christ's obedience and sacrifice. Not just his death, but his obedience and sacrifice. Philippians 2, his obedience unto death. And again, you you say, maybe I'm speaking too harsh. Some of that Reconstructionist blood is still flowing in me. But here's the thing. This is false, and he's teaching this, and he's telling people that church members even, that the imputation of Christ's active obedience was not held by your forefathers. It's not confessional, and people are walking away and repeating this stuff. It's very dangerous. But anyway, this conference took place very sad given that it took place in uh, Bonson's old stomping grounds. Also at this time, uh, a lot happened in August of 2003. There was a Knox Theological Seminary Colloquium Knox Seminary down in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, or maybe Orlando, but anyway, uh, Knox Seminary had a colloquium where they invited various speakers for or against the Federal Vision, and they published this in a book. And in that colloquium, I'm actually not sure they had literal speakers. It may have just been writing the articles back and forth, but there's a volume, a, a wonderful volume that has this Federal Vision pro and con Auburn Avenue Theology, Pros and Cons, Debating the Federal Vision, and you have articles on both sides. And guess who the spokesman who wrote the opening statement for the Federal Vision was? Douglas Wilson. So Douglas Wilson at times tries to make it sound like Federal Vision is just a bunch of his crazy friends and, you know, he's trying to keep them under control. No, he was the author of the opening statement for the Federal Vision side. On that side, you had Barrich, you had Peter Lightheart, Rich Lusk, Steve Schlissel, Steve Wilkins, and Douglas Wilson, among others. On the other side, you had the editor of the volume, Cal Beisner. You had uh, Reformed New Testament commentator, George Knight, who I think was at Greenville at the time. You had Richard Phillips, Joseph Piper, Carl Robbins, Morton Smith, and others. So some of the usual suspects from the other debate the previous year, they brought them back. And they published the Auburn Avenue Theology, Pros and Cons, Debating the Federal Vision. Listen to what Wilson says in his opening statement, because it's so crucial, because Wilson is by far, out of all these men, the only one that still has a high level of popularity and is now growing in his influence. His denomination, which started with three churches originally, now has over 100 churches worldwide, 
And he has been, as we'll see in a moment, he's been trying to distance himself as if he was never really at the center of this, you know, it's just his crazy friends and, and it all happened so fast. But he was their champion. He was their spokesman, their prophet in giving the opening statement and listen to what he says. In all that follows, if we are to be charged with drifting into some form of non-reformed heterodoxy, it will have to be while we are asserting that God freely and unalterably ordains whatsoever comes to pass for his own glory and for the good of his people. In our view, all the positions represented in the current discussion, as well as some others not currently engaged, are part of the historic reformed world and are orthodox and Christian. Now, when we get into the articles in this book in the, on the pro-federal vision side, this is going to cause your head to spin. If you've been someone who's into Doug Wilson and his blog, you're going to be appalled at the things that he's read, and now he's writing the opening statement, summarizing the case of all that's been said in these articles, in this volume. And he's, he's, he's saying not only is it Christian, it's Orthodox, and it's part of the historic Reformed world. By the way, he kind of hedges there by saying world, right? Not the historic Reformed faith, the historic Reformed world. You know, there's somebody out there who holds this. But anyway, you can see what he's saying. Moreover, we do not regard their positions as recent innovations, but we are also happy, not surprisingly, to accept our own position, call you what it like, as part of this historic reformed mix. So he's saying that what's in these articles, we'll look at these a future time, is reformed, historic reformed teaching. He goes on, in the Auburn Avenue controversy, we have used phrases like obedient faith, not just as crazy friends, we. It may still be argued that we ought not to say things like faith is obedience without qualification because people will grossly misunderstand. That is fair enough. And so we do want to qualify these things where possible and when given reasonable opportunity. Nevertheless, we do understand ourselves to be in the middle of the mainstream of historic Reformed orthodoxy. So these are people that are inviting Shepherd to their conference. These are people that are saying these things about everyone who's baptized is united to Christ in a certain sense, and and so on. And he's saying this is Reformed. This is mainstream. In the various papers, we present in this volume numerous citations from our confessions, and our Reformed forefathers will be found that make this point. As was made clear earlier, we are bound to Scripture and more than willing to reject our confessional heritage if allegiance to the Bible requires it. But at the same time, we are glad that we do not have to do this. For the particulars, we would refer the reader to the various papers, and we're going to do that. We're going to look at those papers. Rich Lusk in this volume. So this is part of what Wilson says, hey, this is just garden variety bread and butter, mainstream reform teaching. Rich Lusk, listen to this quote from that volume. This justification requires no transfer or imputation of anything. Does that sound historic, confessional, reformed, mainstream? This justification requires no transfer or imputation of anything. So much for Romans 4. We get the word imputation from the Bible that righteousness was reckoned to Abraham imputed to him. David talks about righteousness 
the, the imputation of righteousness and God not imputing our sins to us. But Rich Lusk, this justification requires no transfer or imputation of anything. It does not force us to reify or redefine righteousness into something that can be shuffled around in heavenly accounting books. That's not just a false teaching. That's, that's, that's a third commandment violation. Mocking the biblical doctrine of justification. Oh, it's just shuffled around in the heavenly account. Well, those heavenly accounting books are keeping track of uh, Mr. Lusk's article as well. He goes on, rather because I am in the righteous one and the vindicated one, I am righteous and vindicated. My in-Christness makes imputation redundant again. Imputation is right out of the Bible. That's the biblical word. So, I mean, you know, who's becoming scholastic and moving away from the Bible and just kind of throwing around a bunch of concepts in their brain and saying, well, this means this and this becomes unnecessary. How can it be unnecessary if Paul says that's why you're justified because you are accounted righteous? Your sins are not imputed to you, but Christ's righteousness is imputed to the believer. Unbelievable. By the way, God justifies the ungodly. Romans 4, He justifies not him who works, but him who does not work. Again, emphasizing that the capacity of faith in justification is not its working by love. It's its passive receiving, or we could say active, but in a way, receiving the righteousness of Christ. But apparently imputation is redundant. Lust goes on, I do not need the moral content of his life of righteousness transferred to me. Think about that. Think about saying that. This is not just theology, my friends. Think about saying this. Imagine if this was put on your tombstone. I do not need the moral content of Christ's life of righteousness transferred to me. What I need, he says, is a share in the forensic verdict passed over him at his resurrection. Union with Christ is therefore the key. So Christ comes into me and now I'm righteous And the biblical teaching of imputation, Romans 4, is just redundant, fictitious shuffling of heavenly accounting books. It's it's unfathomable how Doug Wilson could call that historic reformed orthodoxy. And if you hired a security guard who couldn't tell the difference between your children and a robber, That would be a problem if you have a pastor that can't tell the difference between the biblical doctrine of justification in Romans 4 and an unbiblical presentation of the gospel as we see here, and and in fact thinks that it's historic Reformed orthodoxy, you got to really question why anybody is listening to Doug Wilson and expecting him to give faithful teaching. So this book, this colloquium was put out, it's a great resource. There were a number of other pro-federal vision books that came out. In 2002, Wilson's Reformed is Not Enough. We'll look at that some other time. Shepherd in 02, we saw published The Call of Grace. In 2004, the Monroe Men, plus some other guys like Rich Lusk, published the book The Federal Vision. Uh, Wilson was part of that as well. In 2007, Peter Lightheart published the baptized body and the famous quotation from his lips that 
sort of got him in trouble in the PCA temporarily was no baptism, no justification. No baptism, no justification. He was eventually brought up on charges and tried and found not guilty, but then within a year, the prosecutor in the trial became Roman Catholic. So it says a lot about that situation. In 2009, Shepard published The Way of Righteousness, again repeating his belief that, quote, what is credited or imputed to Abraham? The answer is his faith. The faith he had was reckoned to his account as righteousness. Faith and the obedience flowing from faith are of one piece of Abraham. Abraham was a righteous man. He trusted the Lord and obeyed him, end quote. John Frame wrote a recommendation for that book. Quote, it is my distinct pleasure to commend these studies of Professor Norman Shepard in the highest terms. He goes on, regarding the issue of justification and related matters, he has allowed the Bible to speak for itself and has not shrunk back from either its explicit teaching or its implications. It is my hope, says Frame, that this volume will receive wide distribution and that it will be influential wherever the truth is loved and honored. So, John Frame, if you're keeping score at home. They also published a feshrift or a tribute volume to Norman Shepard called Obedient Faith in 2012 with Sandlin, Barrich, Lightheart, Lusk, and James Jordan involved, and uh, Schlissel and Frame wrote tributes for that. Then, and I know I'm going to try to wrap this up uh, quickly, there were some anti-federal vision books. For instance, The Current Justification Controversy by O. Palmer Robertson, published in 2003, which outlined from from Palmer Robertson's own perspective the whole Norman Shepard controversy in the 70s and 80s. Also, The Auburn Avenue Theology, A Biblical Critique by Brian Shortley. That's available for free online. It doesn't say what year. I'm thinking it was probably 2004 because at that time he was in the RPCUS temporarily along his journey to, to many other places along the way. Another book, Danger in the Camp by John Otis in 2005. This could possibly be the best one. And he actually debated Steve Schlissel over the radio in 2006 on a Christian radio station. And in that debate, listen to what Schlissel says as he's arguing against Otis. He says, the Bible says that God chose Abraham because he knew that he would obey him and keep his commandments and would teach his children to do the same. Now we're told that obedience is optional or only necessary for evidential value or some sort of justification that came by faith, end quote. This is Schlissel. Why did God choose Abraham? This is a mistranslation, by the way, of uh, Genesis 18, 18, and 19. If you look at the New King James Version, it does a much better job. God knew Abraham so that Abraham would obey him. This is a bad translation and and a very troubling interpretation to say that God chose Abraham because God knew in advance that Abraham would be obedient. That's not just Arminian. That's worse than Arminian. At least Arminians are saying, God foresaw my faith. At least, you know, there's some type of nuance there. But here, God chose Abraham because God, in his foreknowledge, knew in advance that Abraham was such a great guy who would keep his commandments and raise up his children. This is very troubling, especially when uh, Doug Wilson seems to be saying that it's reformed. 
Uh, there's another book, The Federal Vision and Covenant Theology by Guy Prentice Waters in 2006. I haven't read that. I'm sure it's very good. He's a well-respected author. Now, in the wake of this, there were numerous denominations in the Reformed world that rejected the federal vision. So the Reformed Church in the United States rejected Norman Shepard's teachings in 2004, calling it, quote, another gospel. They had another statement in 2006-2007 where they repudiated the federal vision. That's, the, I think, the oldest Reformed denomination in North America, the, the Reformed Church in the United States, German Reformed, three forms of unity. The OPC came out with a statement on justification in 2006 and listed 20 theological errors that they attributed to the federal vision. In 2007, Mid-America Reformed Seminary came out with a doctrinal testimony of 45 theological errors that they attributed to the federal vision. The PCA came out with nine declarations against these federal vision teachings in 2007. Unfortunately, all the efforts to bring discipline against Steve Wilkins, Rich Lusk, Jeffrey Myers, and Peter Lightheart came to nothing. So all the discipline cases failed. The PCA said something that was helpful in their declaration of these points of taking issue with federal vision, but they allowed the people who were teaching it to continue teaching it. And as I said, the prosecutor in the Lightheart case eventually became Roman Catholic. Uh, You can watch his testimony of his Catholic faith on YouTube. So um, troubling, to say the least. Wilkins and Lusk joined Doug Wilson's denomination, the Communion of Reformed Evangelical Churches. The RPCNA in 2008 basically just gave their support to the OPC statement and some other of these uh, NAPARC Reformed denominational statements and uh, took their side against federal vision in that way without coming up with their own statement. And in 2010, the United Reformed Churches, an evangelical Dutch Reformed denomination, they rejected federal vision as well. We're not going to read those statements at this time. Now, in conclusion, the federal revision, theological backpedaling of people who were involved in this, especially Douglas Wilson, who is trying to avoid a close association with this movement at this time. And I would say the backpedaling began as early as 2005. You can find an interview with Wilson, interviewed by Michael Horton on the White Horse Inn podcast. That's a very popular Reformed and Calvinistic podcast uh, with Michael Horton and some other guys. They interview Wilson in 2005 about this controversy, and these are not softball questions like the later James White interview. These are real questions, putting his feet to the fire, very good interview. I'm not a huge Horton fan overall. You know, he's not like my favorite author, I'm saying, but this was a great interview, and I would encourage you to look that up. And Wilson is on his best behavior because he's in the presence of confessionalists, and he seeks to sound more mainstream and confessional in that talk. So he's kind of backpedaling. You know, again, it's, it's sort of his crazy friends out there, and and, well, do you disagree with your crazy friends? Well, uh, it's not real. It's a dif- different emphasis, and he's, he's a lot of evasive answers. Trying to sound like he doesn't agree, but not really able to say where he doesn't agree. And then where he says where he doesn't agree, he's asked, well, do you think they would disagree? Well, I don't even know if they would disagree with my disagreement with them. It's, it's all kind of fuzzy. Very postmodern 
Doug Wilson on theological issues. Then there was the Christ Church Ministerial Conference in Moscow, Idaho, also in 2005, called The Federal Vision, Light or Dark, with Rich Lusk and others. And in this conference and this particular talk, Wilson tried to say, well, there's the dark beer. Everything's beer with Wilson. The, the dark beer, the oatmeal stout federal vision, uh, that's Schlissel and Lusk. I'm the light beer, the amber ale, pale ale, lager, or whatever. And I know we're running out of time. I've got to read this. You've got to hear this, and, and we will we'll speed, hasten to a conclusion. Wilson says in this interview, federal vision, light or dark, if you're going to make a nice dark beer with bark still floating in it, one of the things you have to get over when you're marketing it is that you have to not care that people don't like how it tastes at first. Oh. So that's what separates the dark from the light. That's what, you know, Schlissel's out there, he's, and he uses Schlissel. He says, and Steve Schlissel is a good example, and they start erupting in laughter is a good example of someone who doesn't care if you don't like how it tastes at first. He's a passionate man and a passionate Christian pastor. I love him dearly, and I think he's great as a provocateur. I think we need people to say, if you don't like how it tastes, deal with it. But you see, he, he explicitly says it's a marketing campaign. It's a marketing campaign. The Federal Vision is a marketing campaign. You've got the good cops and the bad cops. And the dark beer is the guy who says what they're really thinking and doesn't really care what anybody says and it seems brash and extreme. And then there's the light beer. People that maybe they have a homeschool curriculum, a business, and it's bad for business to come out and say the thing Schlissel says or whatever. It's a marketing scheme. So you have the people that are out there who don't care what people think at first. And then you have the people, presumably, who are just sitting on the iceberg waiting for other penguins to jump in at first, see how these ideas are received. If they're not received, then, oh, a dozen years later, I'll go and get an interview with James White and wash my hands of it. But if it does succeed, maybe I'll follow and, and increase the darkness of, of the beer. Marketing is the word he uses. And at first... Again, why are we taking this man seriously as a Reformed teacher? If he's openly, I mean, I guess I'm not calling him a liar, but you know what they say, the best kind of liar is an honest liar. You know, it's like he's almost just telegraphing what he's planning to do. So big surprise later on when the federal vision, uh, you know, crashes like a lead balloon, he steps away and says, well, he, he, he really was not at the center of it. He says, so I don't mind the fact that there are people out there that are advocating or articulating a dark oatmeal stout, denying imputation. That doesn't bother him. But I also think we need what I'm calling amber ale is an interest in articulating and harmonizing what we're saying with what our Reformed predecessors, I'm talking about the last 100 years in America, they have some legitimate concerns and interests that they don't want to see obscured, and I think a number of times they have a legitimate point or a legitimate concern, and I think that some among us need to be careful that we hear that and articulate that, and that's what I'm calling Federal Vision Amber Ale. I'm not trying to indicate disagreement with Federal Vision Oatmeal Stout, but it's a difference of emphasis. So whenever I get together with Steve Schlissel or Rich Lusk or with Steve Wilkins and all the different characters... We talk about it and we come to agreement in about five or ten minutes. 
But when we're turned loose, we emphasize different things according to our situations, our backgrounds, the ministry in front of us, and so on. So there you have it. This is Doug Wilson in 2005 basically saying he needs to be the light amber lager for strategic purposes. But in behind closed doors, he's right at the center with all the insiders and they're in full agreement. They just go out into different situations where people want to hear different things and they have to present it in different ways. And, they, and, and that's, that's what he's doing here. He admits it. But he knows that most people aren't going to hold their nose and get his subscription to get access to this and look at it. But I had to do that. Anyway, that's from the horse's mouth. Now, Doug Wilson in 2017 issued a blog apology. I'm not going to get into that right now, but he basically said the same thing. I'm getting rid of the name Federal Vision because it is, quote, a hurdle that I cannot get over, under, or around. You know, it's bad for business. But he says he doesn't disagree. He just has a different emphasis. And then he has an interview with James White in 2019 where James White lobs him softball questions and Wilson is not held accountable for all of these things that he endorsed that these other people were teaching. And he simply recounts a very mainstream doctrine of justification such that I could find myself hardly finding places to disagree with in what Wilson's saying in the James White interview in 2019. The problem is he makes it sound like this is what he's always been saying, when in reality he was on the opposite side as the spokesman for the opponents of these teachings. So this is the end of our lecture, but I hope you see the relevance here for Christian discernment. Now again, if if people need to head out, that's fine. If somebody has a question, I'm willing to entertain a question or multiple questions. I know we're way over time though. Okay, let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you for your word, for your spirit, for the discernment that we have by meditating upon your statutes and your truth. We pray that you would give us discernment as we consider various teachers and preachers, that we would listen carefully to what they're saying and search the scriptures to see if these things are so. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.